This is a News Laundry podcast and you're listening to the Media Rumble Sessions. Thank you everyone for coming in. Uh, like most of you know, Sophie uh, worked with uh, Facebook for almost three years uh, where she worked as a data scientist until uh, she was fired for a reluctance uh, to do the right thing. So in this session, the session is titled uh, Whistleblowing in Platform Accountability. Uh, we are going to be discussing uh, Sophie's work on fake engagement, uh, how platforms should be held accountable to uh, what they do. And also I know there are two wire pieces uh, which a lot of journalists here want Sophie to weigh in. So we'll discuss that as well, but we'll circle back to that. So Sophie, thank you for making the trip, first of all. Uh, but just to, uh, if you can go back, uh, when the Guardian piece was first published, uh, it was based on your work, and it essentially talked about how Facebook let fake engagement distort uh, global politics. Uh, I think a section of Indian media also picked it up, but I'm sure a lot of people here are watching you speak for the very first time. So could you first quickly tell us what is it that you did at Facebook, uh, and what exactly did you find uh, that got you fired? Absolutely, and thank you very much for having me, and it's a pleasure to be here. This is my first time in Delhi, or in India in general, so thank you for welcoming me here. So at Facebook, I was a data scientist, which meant that I looked at numbers and figured out what they meant. And I, and I was on the fake engagement team, which looked in theory for inauthentic activity. I'm first going to do a brief segue here. So, Fake accounts and inauthentic activity is separate from misinformation. They sound similar, but they're separate issues. To use an analogy, suppose someone says, the moon is made out of cheese. This is misinformation, I hope you can recognize. And it does not matter who says it. It could be a politician, a child, an elderly pensioner, a dog pretending to be human. It's still misinformation. In contrast, Inauthenticity depends on who says it. Is the person real? Are you a real person, a real Indian, or someone pretending to be this person? Perhaps it's one person who pretends to be 60 at the same time. And if I set up 10,000 fake accounts that say, the moon is made out of rock, there is absolutely nothing wrong with this statement. What is wrong is that I'm using fake accounts to say the message. In the same way, there's nothing wrong with voting for the Congress or BJP or app. What is wrong is if you set up 10,000 10, fake votes to fill ballot boxes with. And so anyways, this, uh, that explanation over, but everything you've heard about me in the press, it's about work that I was doing in my spare time that was not part of my actual job. The work that I did was, was in areas that were reserved for more important people. I did it because I believed it was important, because no one else was doing it, and because I thought it was my responsibility. I had no special training. No one taught me on how to do this, and I'm not a super genius. But, um, but I found fake activity worldwide, including the most egregious cases in Honduras and Azerbaijan, in which I caught both of those governments red-handed. They were not even trying to hide and were insistently running giant IT cells of fictitious assets to mislead and harass their own people. 
Correct. Uh, so, so your work on fake engagement was not just restricted to India, uh, but since we are all in India, could you just like run us through what is it that you found was happening in India and what really happened when you first flagged it or reported it? Absolutely. So, so, so what I found in India was in the type of behavior not that egregious compared to other countries. What was egregious was Facebook's response, which was deeply unusual. So in, so in India, I found five different networks of fake accounts that were supporting polit political parties and figures in India. To, and, and I want to be clear about terminology here. I say supporting because in many cases, we don't know who's behind them. We know who's benefiting, but who, not who's actually organizing it. And so of these five networks, two were supporting the BJP, two were supporting the Congress, one was supporting the app. So quite equal opportunity. And so when I raised them to Facebook, they were reluctant at first, but I pushed the issue and, and kept raising it. Facebook it believes Facebook India is very important to it because it has 1.4 billion people. And so Facebook had agreed we would take all of these down. And, and we took down four out of five of them but the fifth network was not taken down because at the last minute, we discovered that the fifth net network of fake accounts was run out of the personal account of a city member of the Indian Lok Sabha. This would be the Honorable MP Vinod Sankar, who represents Kaushambi, and I understand is currently the sitting chairperson of the Standing Committee on Ethics in the Lok Sabha. And I, I had not realized that until I Googled his name uh, oh, uh, much later. I, it was very ironic. And I, 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 I'd never set foot in India before this week. I don't speak Hindi. <laughs> in some ways, it was an advantage. I could be certain that I was not biased because I didn't know who any of these people were. <laughs> but anyways, as soon as that discovery was made, Facebook went silent. They had already agreed to take it down, but they didn't want. To, but they but they didn't want to act. I kept proposing, okay, we can take down the fake accounts and leave the MP alone. He won't. He won't want to complain about this. What will he say to the press? Facebook took down my fake accounts. He'd be laughed out of the room. But I, I couldn't get an answer out of each any of them. It was like I was talking to Stonewall. You think this intent to not act, is it, was it maybe because Facebook lacked resources, they didn't have the bandwidth, or in your experience or how you saw it, do you think it has to do with the relations uh, the company had with the government? And or they were scared of like the blowback it will have if they actually do uh, block those content? So, so in other cases where Facebook lacked resources, they would usually, for instance, make a decision and say, we don't have the resources to tackle this, or the, or the, the lack of resources would be in barrier earlier. It would not be considered in the first place, and they would, that wouldn't, and they would never get, not get to the point in which a decision was made. The, the difficulty of takedowns in terms of resources comes in two parts. The most difficult part is it's finding who is, what, what, where the bad activity is. That, that's the hardest part. I did that all on my own. The second part, which is much smaller, is verifying that it's real and making a decision. That was also done by Facebook already. And so basically, they chickened out at the last minute, I suppose. And so this was a deeply unusual response. But that said, I can't read minds. It is, 
I raised the issue repeatedly. It is, it, it is possible that all of my, issue, all of my questions were, it went into, were ignored because people were too busy and they forgot about it. It's possible that when I was in conversations about one issue, uh, the, the pro-app network in Delhi, and they brought up this pro-BJP network, and, and, and they would ignore it and go back to the other one that maybe they didn't notice it. But the combination of factors, it's implausible deniability. Correct, correct. Um, so, Sophie, correct me if I'm wrong, but you've testified before the British Parliament, you've testified before the European Parliament, and uh, you've testified in the California State Council, right? You did offer to testify uh, before the Parliamentary Standing Committee on IT. Uh, you were also in touch with Sashi Tharoor's office, who back then was the chairperson of the committee. Uh, so could you uh, tell us what really happened there? Because usually when you have offered to testify, because governments also are increasingly looking into this, they are keen to listen to whistleblower account. Uh, so one, like what was your experience, what really happened? And B, do you think the reluctance to engage with you might have to do with the fact that while we may have data or we may have proof now that a company uh, may favor those in power, but essentially if there is a loophole, if there are these IT cell or if there are these inauthentic networks, essentially it's not just one party that is leveraging or misusing it. So, so I want to answer the first part first and talk about what happened with Sadok Sabha. So at the end of November last year, 2021, the Standing Committee on IT voted unanimously, it was reported, to invite me to testify. And th this, what I was very pleasantly surprised by, th that the Indian lawmakers could come together and agree on this with no dissent, which I understand is very difficult in India today. Many people, however, because I'm not an Indian national, I'm an American who flew in from California. This was pursuant to the approval of the speaker. And many, many people, reporters, assumed that this was an afterthought. Of course, it would be granted. But the Honorable Speaker ha has seen fit to, fit to neither officially approve or deny the, the, the request for me to testify. This is something very new in Indian politics. Because I'm going to use an analogy. Usually when the, when the OS passes the bill, it goes to the president who must reject or approve it. But in 1987, during the ministry of Rajiv Gandhi, President Leo Singh did something very different for, for a bill that was about the, po the postal bill, which would have allowed the government to examine mail for security reasons. He, ni he, he neither approved it or rejected it. Instead, he waited it out indefinitely. Okay. This was the first and only pocket veto in Indian history. And through this, these means, President Singh rejected the bill effectively, even though he did not do so officially. And as far as I can tell, Speaker Burna has invented a pocket veto of his own, which is not the way I intended to make my mark on Indian history. <laughs> but <laughs> no, it's, it's really amazing how much in tune you are with how parliamentary procedures work in India. I've, I've learned a lot over the past year. <laughs> Yes, and so and so and so and so because of that, I released my documentation publicly back in June to several dozen Indian news outlets, of which maybe fifteen eventually published. 
Correct, just, just so our audience also knows. So the Guardian article appeared in April 2021, yes. which is after which you offer to testify and you offer to share the documents. When that didn't happen for around six, seven months, I think earlier this year is yeah. when you actually uh, shared the entire uh, data, the entire paperwork that you had with, with a bunch of Indian publishers, including News Laundry as well. Yes. And... For, the, for around the past several months, half year, I've also been in contact with the office of Dr. Sharu to, to offer potential additional ways of working around the speaker's pocket veto. So, so what I was told personally, I still can't find actual information on this in terms of laws and regulations, is that the speaker's approval is only necessary because I'm not based in India and it is necessary to cover my travel expenses. So first I offered to the office of Dr. Sarur that I could cover my expenses out of pocket. I would be happy to do so, to, to testify for the Indian government. It would be my civic duty. The second was that, I mean, this whole issue was because I was not in India, but if it could be arranged for myself to be in India in person for unrelated reasons, such as, for instance, speaking at the media rainbow, <laughs> there would be no difficulty for me testifying in person. I would, they could issue the invitation. I would be happy to, to work out the visa issues and extend my stay to testify. These, these, these were in the past several months before the committee, before Dr. Saru was removed from the committee chairmanship. But anyways, his office confirmed the receipt of the offers, but I did not hear from him further. I don't know ultimately what happened. There, what happened there? Correct. Uh, there were a bunch of uh, both politicians and member of parliament who actually went on record and said that we would love to have uh, Sophie come down to the parliament. And I think Dr. Tharoor Thar is one of them. Uh, if I'm correct, Derek O'Brien also went on record. Uh, so, did any of the political parties at any point uh, try to get in touch with you to like get access to the information or something? And other, do you think like okay? I understand that we you need this. We need the speaker's consent if you have to testify uh, before the parliamentary committee. But did any of the political parties reached out and said, or maybe like even like members within the committee, because the committee has members not just from the ruling party but also parties across the board. Uh, did like people from the committee say, okay, you can't have an official deposition, but maybe three or four of us can get together and you, you can tell us what exactly data that you have, which can then like push the speaker or the uh, committee head uh, to vouch for you coming down to India. The only member of the Doksapa that I have been directly in contact with is the office of Dr. Sharur. I mean, I, have, I don't think I've been contacted by anyone else, though it is, I mean, I mean, it's possible that they tried and I didn't see it, but I try to keep very good notice and, event. and so I don't think I've been contacted by anyone else. I mean, if they wanted me to testify, I mean, I'm, I'm sure the app could have arranged it in Delhi or Congress in Rajasthan or Trinumo in West Bengal for that matter, but I mean, to be perfectly frank, as far as I can tell, it, it does not seem at the, the very least to be a priority. Correct. And do you think uh, this kind of indifference is unique to India? Like, for example, you have testified uh, in the British and the European Parliament. Uh, so obviously, lawmakers there, uh, one thing is to say they understand this better, but also they have more intent 
to act on this. Do you think that is also the case that here policymakers don't have the intent or maybe for some reason they understand that this is an issue our voters or people on the ground don't really care about. So we don't really want to act on it. So my personal experience with government is that it works either extremely quickly or extremely slowly. <laughs> with the British Parliament, for instance, I was contacted by uh, MP Damien Collins, who's a conservative who represents Folkestone and Heights in the British Parliament. And within like five or six days, I was testifying to the British Parliament. <laughs> it was very fast. <laughs> and they wanted me to testify about one of the bills in progress that is still being considered in Parliament, the online safety bill. In the European Parliament, this was back two years ago at this point, that I was testifying was publicly announced, but not the content of my testimony. This was back before I was speaking out publicly. And anyways, these are things different from India, however, because in those cases, I was not testifying about behavior that implicated either political party in Britain or, 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 the European, or in the European Union for that matter, for the large part. I was testifying about dangers that they potentially faced, about the activity I found which reflected wrongdoing on part of a company and the wrongdoing in other countries, which is very different. In contrast, in India, I mean, I was very, like I tried my best to be fair and take down the the prop, take down the fake accounts they found across the political spectrum. I caught uh, on the BJP side. I caught MP, MP Sonkar red-handed. Uh, on the Congress side, I caught three Congress MLAs in Punjab. Although two of them have since switched to the BJP, which I understand to be a trend in Punjab. And and so I mean. And so, I mean, and so I don't know what's going through the, the, the heads of each politician. I mean, these were all in the documents I offered to the committee before they voted to invite me. So I thought that was a very positive development when I was invited. But it may simply be that it's, too, it's embarrassing enough that it's less of a priority. Or, or maybe there's other things going on. I understand Dr. Saru is very busy now running for Congress president. I mean, like, I, I, I mean, to be clear, I do not have any preference publicly in, the, in that race or such. This is, I'm not trying to kill his candidacy or anything. Got it. Um, you know, earlier in the days, Sophie, we were talking about how you're a very unlikely candidate to be a whistleblower. You don't have a book deal. Uh, again, something a lot of journalists will identify with. Uh, you don't have a PR company managing uh, all of this. Uh, and obviously, I understand that uh, if you do come forward with your story, uh, you're obviously taking a professional risk. Uh, and the primary intent is to tell the truth. But there's, there's also like secondary and tertiary uh, uh, reasons, right? You don't have any of those. You, from what I can understand is, and from what I've seen and read about you, it's entirely to have uh, so that the public can know what, uh, what the truth is. Uh, tell me how, how life has been uh, uh, since you came forward with your story. Uh, it does whistleblowing come at like a personal cost. Uh, I'm sure you can't go work with TikTok, Facebook, or any of the other platform companies. So if you could just tell us how, how has it been since that Guardian article came in? Yeah, it's definitely been very different. So 
I'm an extreme introvert who hates interacting with people and prefers to stay home and pet my cats. They're very good cats. I do not understand why any man would ever want to be famous. But at the same time, most people do not want to wake up at 6 a.m. in the morning to go to their class, to, to go into a job, or etc. To, to go to, to travel to their job. But we still do it anyways because it's important and it's for a larger purpose. And that's essentially how I see speaking to the press. Sorry, no offense. <laughs> oh, no, that's okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, like I, I have paid a personal cost through my whistleblowing. I lost half my friends when I joined Facebook. I think they thought I sold out. I lost another half when I left when I left Facebook, and became a whistleblower. <laughs> like, like I haven't had a job since since leaving Facebook. I mean, not for not for lack of offers or etc. It's simply that I don't think it would be ethical for me to find a job while I'm kind of went enough to India to speak at conferences or offer to testify or whatever. But you said that you you said that you don't think it could be hired at major tech companies. So I was given an offer from a major tech company back in last year that was re retracted around the time Francis Hogan came forward. I don't know oh, if any of those were. I don't know if any of those were related. But anyways, it's it's I. I have gotten people who want me to apply for their job or etc. And that, that's something I would like to look into eventually, if nothing else, so I have an excuse to stop talking to journalists. Sorry again. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, but I don't take any, pay I don't take payments for speaking or writing op-eds or etc. It's very important for me to be able to honestly yeah, say. If uh, Sophie was charging, I don't think we'll be able to afford her also. So. <laughs> I mean, I mean, well, I, Yes, I charge, uh, what do I charge? No. I charge this glass of water. Congratulations. Got it. So, uh, so we know you, there's you, there's also uh, Francis Hogan. Uh, there's at least over the last two, two and a half years, there, besides all the whistleblower account, there has been a lot of inquiries into how platforms work, how there's a lack of transpar transparency uh, as to how algorithms work and so on and so forth. Uh, if you look back, do you think uh, you coming forward with your story, all whistleblowers like Francis Hogan, do you think it has led to real change or like a difference within how things work in these companies? Or that's something that, that change do you think will have uh, happen in the longer run? So I'm aware of one concrete change that has happened at Facebook since I left, which might be related to myself. That change is Facebook has cr cracked down on internal communications not directly related to oh, the yes. job, which is a change that I think anyone who lived through the emergency would recognize, but it's not one that they consider to be positive, and it's not, and we're moving in the right direction. Like, ultimately, like, I, th I think that many authoritarian uh, uh, organizations tend to take it as a threat when an insider speaks out, they're or even ju just one of their citizens. They're, they're, if, if a Chinese citizen speaks out against the Chinese state, they're accused of being a traitor, of being suborned by the West, of being enthralled to, to, to some conspiracy, because they cannot genuinely believe that someone that raised by that someone who grew up in the state would turn against them that they that that, that their rule is not perfect and there is frankly a similar tendency that I see within within Mark Zuckerberg. But ultimately, 
if there was a chance for Facebook to reform itself from within, that ch chance seems to have died, I'm sorry to say. Correct. But uh, would, would you agree that at least it has led to more awareness, like more attention in, in uh, media, at least like back in India that this conversation is still like, uh, we are starting to have this conversation. So do you, do you see that at least as a positive impact uh, of your work and other whistleblowers' work? Yes, yes, absolutely. I think it's, I would like to think that it's much more talked about, though, frankly, as a Sydney American who was not paying attention to Indian press before I came forward, I don't have a basis for comparison. But in order to fix a problem, you need to know that it exists in the first place and understand what that is going on. That was why I chose to speak out in the first place. And I see my personal role as providing information. It's certainly not upon me as an American to tell Indians what to do, simply to give the information I have and let you make your own judgments. Like, and, and I don't think there has been any concrete governmental change based on my work yet. And that's a nebulous question that remains to be answered in the future. Correct. Um, so I quickly want to ask your opinion on the wire pieces, uh, just so everyone in the audience uh, also knows. So over the last one week, wire has published two pieces, and I hope I get all the details rightly. Uh, the first piece essentially uh, talks about how there were a bunch of posts, including a video where someone was spraying uh, to Adityanath's, uh, Yogi Adityanath, who's the UP chief minister's, his uh, painting, and uh, that there were a bunch of posts which were immediately taken down uh, because Amit Malviya, who's the ru ruling party BGP IT cells head, because he's reported it. Uh, the claim that has been made in the first piece is that uh, Amit Malviya has something uh, called the X check or the cross check, uh, whatever you call it. Uh, X check when uh, previously Wall Street Journal uh, 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 did their reportage and did analysis. Xcheck is essentially a system. There are millions of accounts which have uh, this white labeling process called Xcheck. Essentially, what it means is every platform or every company has a bunch of community guidelines, which if you violate, you're kicked out of the platform. Uh, the way it works is if you have that Xcheck label, uh, action is not taken even if you violate those guidelines. So it's essentially like a safe shield uh, uh, that gives you a free pass. Uh, to violate the platform, and in uh, Wall Street Journal's reporting, there's there's enough data, enough reporting how political parties and politicians have actually uh, misused and gone on to uh, pass out misinformation and on platforms. So the claim in the first piece was that because Amit Malviya uh, has an Xcheck account, uh, a bunch of posts, including the one that I mentioned, was immediately taken down. In response to that, uh, I hope I get all the names right, Andy Stone, who's uh, Meta's... Uh, spokesperson. Spokesperson. Okay, he said uh, that this is not true. Uh, the account was taken down because we have a process where once you report an account, obviously uh, you have AI that looked into that, and then that decision was taken through that automated process and not because Amit Malviya uh, flagged it. Uh, and obviously, Andy Stone said that it's not correct, it's fabricated, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, three days la later, I did another piece, uh, uh, which again has uh, screenshots, uh, which Wire claims are screenshots of an email that Andy Stone sent after the publication of the first piece. Uh, it's an internal email where he's talked about, obviously, how the hell uh, did the screenshot leaked, and uh, obviously, he's given up the 
couple of instruction of those managers things anyway. So, uh, uh, and obviously Wires' uh, 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 claim is that because that email has gone, it actually proves that the, f or whatever information or claim that they had put out is actually correct. So I, did I get all the details uh, correct, more or less? So <laughs> what's, what's your take on, on the claim? Because both on social media, reporters are also arguing with each other. So what is, uh, yeah. what is your yeah. take on this, Sophie? So, so this is a case that has attracted a lot of attention in India over the past week. If you've never heard of this before, I'm very sorry because that, because that must sound very confusing. But essentially, there are, as far as I can, there are two sets of documents put out by the wire whose authenticity has been heavily debated. I've seen many reporters discuss it, this email. Does the, does the, the language looks too Indian English. It's not what an American English speaker would say, or etc. And which apparently you couldn't figure because you've been reading so much of Indian English. Yes, yes, yes. So that was actually my reaction. I'm like, yeah, I didn't notice anything wrong because I've, I mean, even if he said in the email, please do the needful, I probably wouldn't have thought anything about it because I have spent so long speaking to, English, to Indian reporters and the Indian press. I was so confused by that expression the first time I heard it. But I mean, in, Indian English is different from British English, which is different from American English. I don't think there's anything wrong from it. But anyways, I, I can't speak on the, my expertise in Indian English. I don't have any. What I can speak about is, do the, do the documents look to accurately reflect internal Facebook documents, systems-wise? And I, I, I'm sorry, and as I have publicly stated, there are a number of areas in which they don't match up with my, with my personal knowledge of what Facebook systems looked like from the inside, how documents were written, the, the, the official names given for things like, after, like, like reviewing, uh, reviewing a case after, after an issue, etc. I was initially cautious just because I'd been gone from Facebook for two years, and a lot of things can change in two years. But since then, I've spoken with others from, from people I know from Facebook, current and former, some of whom are still there, and say the systems have not changed in two years. These look fake to me too. Like they aren't about whether they recognize the specific documents, but rather do the systems, the specific documents are written in the formatting, the style, etc., look correct. And I don't think there's a single former Facebook person who has publicly said that they believe these documents. I think it was the one who came closest. At the start, I was open to the idea, and I mean, frankly, I've worked with Savire before. There's one of my op-eds published in there somewhere, and but this whole saga is very confu is very confusing and bizarre, just because no matter what the, what the, what really happened, it basically requires a conspiracy of some sort. And what I mean is that the wire has relied on multi they, they say they rely on multiple sources on which they have significant trust it seems like they they say they've met these sources in person that that they've been for, for for a long time and that's and getting multiple people to agree it's much harder than a single person going rogue i mean i mean it got, if if i wanted to convince someone okay that's a great lie on this story and you say this and i say this and you don't and we don't mess it up that's very hard and and yet that is one of the most obvious explanations. Other explanations might involve the, the virus sources fell for a trap planted in by a fake documents planted internally by Facebook for leakers, which would require a lot of effort from within Facebook, a lot of people within Facebook to know about this. 
for uncertain possible gain. Or maybe, we're, and I'm going to mention for completeness, I do not think this happened, but if the wire made it up, that would require help from a Facebook employee for the knowledge of internal systems. And it would also, and, and it would also require a lot of wire people and, and they don't have the knowledge and we require more people and it would take a lot of people again. That's people who could disagree, break the conspiracy, but ultimately it had to be one of these conspiracies essentially and that's the difficult part we were at. We're at. Frankly, what it reminds me of is the case, I think it was a year ago, in which uh, a reporter, Needy, I think she received what, what looked like a job offer from Harvard University and turned out to be, uh, to be a, a, a false offer in which some people had, for unknown reason, put an in, inordinate effort into convincing her that this was a real offer. And in, in a Bollywood movie, everything is nicely wrapped up at the end. You know that great explanation and there's a silent dance. But in real life, it, this isn't a Bollywood movie and we quite possibly will never really know what happened here. Like, like, with, the, like with the fake Harvard report, Professor Strip case. No one knows what happens there. It's just, it happened. Who, who could have been behind this? We don't know. Why would they do this? We don't know. And that's it. That, that's the state a year later. And that might be the case for The Wire. Okay, I really think you're upselling Bollywood films, but... Uh, <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry. No offense intended. <laughs> no, but uh, so we have seen how Meta responds uh, to whistleblowing accounts or inquiries. Uh, in, in your experience, and just purely going from the fact how they've responded earlier, like for example, in your case, they, uh, they more or less never engaged with it. They, uh, they didn't comment on it. They like stayed as far as they could. Uh, do you think there is a possibility that if uh, Meta as a company sees like substantiated proof where they have done wrong, uh, there is a possibility where they can just go ahead and say this is all fabricated. Do you, or do you think like because it hasn't happened in the past, uh, it's it's unlikely? I think I think that it's a possibility. It is. I mean, Facebook has toyed with this idea in my, in, in my case. They've changed their statements. They've changed their statements on my case half a dozen times. And at some point, they said their previous statement was a lie when I was reporting that statement. In that they said I was lying when all I was doing was saying their previous statement. Their current statement, after I released the documentation publicly for the entire world to see, was that they cannot comment on the documents as they have not been provided them and have not seen them, which I suppose is an answer in of itself. But anyways, I mean, could Facebook have accused these of being forgeries? Yes, it could have. But in that case, it would have to, there would be a number of inconsistencies. For one thing, these had previously been seen by The Guardian, which can testify to the fact that it showed Facebook these documents back in, back in uh, spring of 2021, and they were not accused of being forgeries. For, for, for another, if that were the case, I would probably release all my documentation in full, which are frankly, which, which is something like 2,000 pages, and frankly, far too long for someone like myself with no support to fabricate, and would, and, and it would also lead to testimony from former employees who I worked with that this really happened. But it is something that could theoretically happen. It is not something that they've done in the past, but I've never died before, but I'm pretty sure it will happen one of these days. Correct, correct. Uh, how has your experience been working with Indian journalists? Uh, because I'm guessing you've worked a lot with Indian journalists in the past year, year and a half. 
how has your experience been because i remember uh, uh, and in the earlier time when we spoke uh, the memo that you wrote on your last day at facebook that went mm -hmm. viral and uh, if i'm recollecting it correctly it had the phrase bad actors uh, wherein you were uh, uh, referring to it cell networks in authentic networks and how essentially they are misusing uh, and making sure that because facebook is not acting on it they're making the most of it uh, mirror now actually ran a story which said uh, and i think i have it written here uh, it said that there's a story about sophisticated network of bollywood actors used to influence delhi election so so from that bad actors where like there was a story on how yes. uh, bollywood is involved how has your overall experience been that is there a difference like for example if you deal with journalists in us and if you deal with journalists in india is there a difference or do you have to show more patience or anything there's, de there's definitely differences if nothing else the cultural barrier and language the difference i mean even if we speak english it's not the same english american english and british english isn't the same either like here, here's an example of the latter two so in american english when say a piece of legislation is tabled that means you put it in a drawer and forget about it forever. It's strung oh. out. In, in British and European English, if you say a piece of legislation is being tabled or something or a proposal is tabled, that means it's prepared to be considered immediately. And, <laughs> and this is a very basic example. Like the same language, but separated across an ocean. And there's, there's going to be differences. And they don't see... Indian English any differently, like of, of course you speak English differently from the way it's spoken in the United Correct. States. No, but I mean in terms of intent to uh, work yeah, on stories. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so sorry. That like in terms of intent, and do you see a lot of interest from newsrooms and Indian uh, journalists? Uh, like for example, when you actually did share all the documents earlier this year, like what was the response? Like what were the kind of questions you uh, got? Because from the looks of it, obviously, there is a lot more reporting happening uh, into how platforms are, are operating in US and Europe, where in India, for whatever reason, we, it's still either rare or very less. And obviously, there are multiple reasons for that. Uh, uh, and one of it is also because uh, digital newsrooms who are actually doing a lot of original uh, reportage, uh, a lot of times lack the kind of bandwidth uh, that uh, newsrooms in US or Europe will have. So in terms of intent and want interest in those stories, is there a difference? There was definitely a difference in interest. It, it was very hard to get the Indian press interested at first, frankly. When I, I first came forward publicly with The Guardian in April of 2021, I think that was a mistake because The Guardian had very little presence in India and no Indian readership. And so, and, and so the, there were no interviews published in India fr fr from that or etc. Like there were two, there were two, there were two. Do you wrong, Mirror now did run that, uh, did run that story how Which uh, Bollywood. <laughs> No, the one that I earlier mentioned, how Mirror now ran a story yes. there. Yes, no, no, I mean, that was back when my memo was leaked. That not when I came forward publicly, but yes, when my memo was leaked, time, I used the word bad actors, which is a security industry term of adversaries who exploiting the platform to do bad things. Times now saw that, ran with that, and if you Google my name and Bollywood, you will find the article saying that I caught Bollywood red-handed. That was my first experience with the Indian press, personally, and... I'm sorry to anyone here from Times Now. I'm sure you are great people and not all like this, but I did not know whether to laugh or cry when I saw that article. 
But uh, like when I came, I was not talking to anyone pu publicly at the time. I came forward with uh, with, with the Guardian, with a number of pieces, including one in India, in India, uh, about, uh, about, uh, back in April 2021. And uh, there was not much interest in India then, especially uh, especially because I had the horrific timing to have came forward right when the giant COVID spike, case spike was about to happen. There were two. There were two outlets that interviewed me, but killed the but killed the the story because they were focused completely understandably on the fact that so many Indians were dying and getting sick and etc. And so I was basically forgotten up until September of twenty twenty one, and around the t a bit after Francis came forward. I don't know what really happened, but this, this is my personal guess as to what happened. There were a lot of Indian reporters and reporters worldwide who wanted to interview Francis Hogan and found that she was not speaking to anyone, but mostly, and decided, okay, is there anyone else we can get? Who is our substitute? Oh, here, let's get her. That's, that's my personal guess. Karen, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that was not the case for all outlets. So we're almost out of time, so we'll open for a question answer from the audience. Uh, Manik here from Fosbytes Media. Um, I'm from an up-and-coming uh, tech publication, and uh, I covered uh, your case thoroughly when you leaked those documents and when everything came out. That Facebook has been fined billions of dollars around the world. Okay, it uh, has been fined for server law violations and uh, tracking users without consent and things like that. Uh, but that doesn't seem to make a dent. What can we do from the outside, or what can the governments around the world do from the outside to make an actual change, if it is possible, in Facebook's practices, or in Meta's practices as a wider name today? So this is a difficult area because by face, Facebook has ensured that the people with the power to regulate Facebook in India, the Indian government, are positively disposed to it through its favoritism and do, and do, not, have the, and do not have the intent to regulate Facebook. And frankly, that is not a situation I see changing in the near future. Like even if a new government were elected, my belief is that Facebook would immediately be, fa fa be partial to that new government and that new government would lose its incentive to change anything. And so this is a very difficult situation. I'm not going to pretend that it's better. It, it would, it would it, like, with regards to options, it's unlikely that anything will come from outside of India. Countries like the United States, like the United Kingdom, they are focused understandably on Facebook's impact in their own nation. And even if they were to act, it would be very difficult for that to happen and not be accused of being colonialism. Entities like the United Nations also seem like a non-starter simply because there are so many dictators upon them. Each of them would demand to have social media as their own preserve. And, and there would be no push for accountability. And so frankly, I, only, I don't see any options forward unless the Indian people come together and demand that to happen. Like, I'm sure Mahatma Gandhi might have, must have thought it was extraordinarily difficult when he chose to stand up and oppose the greatest empire on the face of the planet. I don't think there's anything that unite, the Indian people united cannot achieve. It's just very difficult to get them all united on anything. But, 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 and I'm sorry I don't have an easier answer. Perhaps there could be the induction of a uniquely honest government that even though it enjoys benefits from social media partiality, still choose to regulate it. But that, that it would be, of course, very difficult.
Okay, someone had a question here. Yeah. Hi, this is Adhatmi here, and I'm from the BIPS University. And I do have a question like, uh, first of all, I, I'd like to greet you about um, what you, being a, a whistleblower, such a big tech giant, the whole world respects you. The question about, um, the thing is that, uh, being a whistleblower, you know the ins and outs of the social media and the world, what's the problem being faced by the common people. So do you have anything in mind, like, uh, when, come on, when we get, get to the social media, there's always Facebook products and all these stuff. So do you have anything in mind which can probably be a great social media or something you, you would like to be happening in with the um, uh, social media, um, I would say the territory of social media. So, I mean, like coming up with something new or something like that, would you like to share some insights on that? I'm sorry, I didn't quite understand the question. You so, asking um, something about how reporters should use social yeah, media? I mean, like the insights of social media, how it can be the better one. And I mean, like, it's a business, right? Mm -hmm. So how we can improve on that territory. So do you have anything good in mind? Can we have a social media, like a platform company, which users would like to use, but which will not have all yeah. these abuses? Absolutely. I think it's possible, but would require regulation. I think a lot of it is that that it's that fundamentally the practice social media in, in its present state is focused on what what makes money for itself and which may include which may include for instance pandering to to governments that, that can make its life difficult that may include for instance ch choosing to increase virality and, and at the at the expense of credibility and and checks and and so if, if a competing social media s starts up that does not do it, it will face pressures to go in that direction and it will necessarily be less profitable th than, th than, the, uh, than, than the existing social media. And that is the difficulty. And so ideally, this is the case that would see governmental regulation. But unfortunately, I have just explained why that is difficult in India. I am very sorry to not be able to give you any easy answers. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So my question is the is a follow up on the first one actually. You painted a very bleak picture of uh, what government will possibly not do, which we understand. But is there something that citizen interest groups can do, or there are other actors which can uh, come out and uh, you know there could be something which they can do to act and prevent misuse of these platforms in the way that they happen in, in the current uh, situation right now. I think that ultimately, civil society and etc. should work on increasing awareness of these issues in the first place to the Indian people. Like, I, I don't think that my message is partisan or, 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 or divisive in India. Like, he, like the Standing Committee on IT voted unanimously to invite, invite me, and I think all Indians can come together in theory and agree that wrongdoing is bad, integrity is important, no matter who is responsible. But that, re but that, but that requires people to be aware that it's e even happening in the first place. Like f 50 years ago, social, uh, the traditional media was responsible for, who, for what made the press. But today, social media has taken over that role. Even when I when I was covered simultaneously in Times of India, Express, Hindustan Times, uh, Duncan Herald, and Anand Bazar, Patrika, uh, Mashrubumi, it's it's a it's so many more. Like that's a who's who of the Indian press, but it didn't go viral, so it didn't happen. Like ultimately, ultimately, in order to in order to change things, to fix things, you first have to understand the problem, and since. And since it seems unlikely for the government to do so, 
it falls upon the common people, the anatomy of India, to do it themselves. And that means educating the fellow person. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for coming in. Thank you, Sophie, for all your work and for all your courage. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes, and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. To catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs, and sport, visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to our YouTube channel.